Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. It really is amazing how short the memories are on Wall Street, because to me, this seems exactly like December, when everybody was convinced that a rate hike wouldn't matter because the economy was improving and it could handle higher rates and the market could handle higher rates. And so the stock market rallied right up until the point when the Fed actually raised rates. And then it rallied a little bit. And then it rolled over and we had the worst decline to begin a year in the history of the stock market. Well, flash forward uh, to the Fed now saying that they're going to raise rates in June, or at least everybody believing that the Fed is going to raise rates in June. And all of a sudden, we're having this huge stock market rally. We had a huge update yesterday. I mean, I'm recording this uh, midday, but the Dow is up well over 160 points as I speak. So the markets are rallying. The Nasdaq had this huge update yesterday, again, up again big today, on the idea that the economy is improving and the Fed is going to raise rates because the economy is improving. And the the fact that the market is going up, well, this proves that the market can handle higher rates, which is another reason why the Fed may feel comfortable in actually delivering higher rates because, hey, the market is not selling off. Therefore, the market must be okay with higher interest rates. And so the market is giving the go-ahead to the Fed to notch rates up another quarter point. But that's exactly the attitude prior to the last rate hike. That's exactly what was going on. And the Fed, again, made the mistake of believing that it was okay to raise rates. And despite the fact that the data was weak, the Fed raised rates anyway. Well, that's exactly what's happening now. And in fact, If you go back to the minutes of the FOMC meeting, which is what ignited this whole the Fed is going to raise rates uh, narrative, the Fed said it all depends on the data. It all depends on how the economy is doing. If the economy continues to improve, if the labor market continues to improve, well, then we're going to hike rates. But the reality is the data is the opposite. Ever since they met, the economic data on balance has been weaker than expected not stronger than expected, including all the data that's come out this week has pretty much fallen into that camp of the weaker than expected. But hey, nobody cares because the Fed says everything is great so we can ignore the data because somehow these guys are geniuses and if they think the economy is great, it must be great. Forgetting about the fact that they have a horrible track record, uh, the economy must be great. Meanwhile, it's not just the stock market that's rallying. It's the oil market that's rallying. We're now well above $49 a barrel. This is a new high for the year. We're now knocking on the door of $50 crude. So if the U.S. consumer was having trouble 
with $30 crude, uh, he's going to have an even harder time with $50 crude. Gold and gold stocks seem to be the only real assets that are selling off. The dollars rallied slightly, but it's not like the dollars had a big rise. I mean, the dollar index is still barely hanging on. It's 95.4, so it is back above 95, but it's not like it's rushing back up to the old highs, which are around 100. Uh, But gold has, in fact, sold off. Gold stocks sold off even more. But, I mean, gold is still well above the 1,200 level. It hasn't uh, gone back below that. Gold's at about uh, 1223 as I'm recording this. And silver's, silver's still hanging in there at 1627. So we haven't given back all the gains. But traders are now thinking, oh, the Fed's going to raise rates. That's going to be bad for gold. That's going to be good for the dollar. Well, what happened the last time the Fed raised rates? They raised rates a quarter point and the price of gold took off. The dollar tanked. Why would the next hike be any different? It's still too little too late. Another quarter point isn't going to matter, especially another quarter point as the economy is weakening or is already in recession. And obviously, if they raise in June, they're not raising in September, too close to the election. And they clearly won't raise in December because by then they'll cut because by then the election will be over and the Fed can stop pretending everything is great because the results of the election will already be in. And now the Fed has to hurry up and stimulate the economy. You see, right now, they don't want to admit the economy needs stimulus because that's an admission that we're back in recession and that's an indictment of the Obama administration and that undermines Hillary Clinton. So the Fed can't admit that the economy is weak before the election. But once the election is over, there's no reason not to pull out all stops and try to do whatever they can to boost the economy for the new president. So if we do get another rate hike in June, and it's still a big if, but if we do, That is got to be the last one. And whether or not the Fed actually made one rate hike or two rate hikes before they have to surrender and go back to zero or go negative and launch QE4, none of it's going to matter. It's not going to matter to gold. It's not going to matter to the dollar. And I don't know why people's memories are so short to think that the next rate hike is what's going to crush gold when the last rate hike didn't do it at all. If anything, it was a catalyst to move gold up dramatically. And I think the same thing will happen in June. If the Fed follows through with a rate hike, I think gold is going to take off. And if the Fed doesn't hike rates, which is probably still more probable that they won't hike rates in June than they will, then I think gold will rally even more because now it's, you know, not just buy the rumor, sell the fact, but buy the rumor and sell because the rumor wasn't even true. And then, of course, there's a lot of articles now about the Fed's credibility being lost if they don't move in June, which is, again, the same type of credibility corner that they back themselves up into December. Let me get to the economic data that came out this week, particularly the new home sales, which came out yesterday, which really kind of ignited this stock market rally and also kind of caused a big decline, I believe, in uh, the the gold stock market yesterday, because this is the only data point that really beat this week. And they were expecting new home sales to pick up by 523,000 after the 511,000 gain from the prior month. And they ended up revising the prior month up a bit, about 20K. But the current month, the April month, was a huge increase, 619,000 versus 523,000, like the biggest jump since 2008, just before the financial crisis. And this was like signs that, aha, the economy is back, everything is great, because new home sales have surged, everything is fine, the Fed can raise rates, this is great. I don't know how you can jump to such a ridiculous conclusion from a spike in the data. And first of all, new home sales are a tiny part 
of the housing market. Existing home sales are the bulk of the market. This is just a tiny subset of the real estate market. And again, this is not first-time home buyers. They're still pretty much priced out of the market. I mean, they're renting or they're living with their parents. This is people that are already already homeowners buying. And there's a lot of condos in here, but it was a big jump. I don't know how much of it had to do with any type of seasonality issues there. But you know what? Sometimes data points just jump up. You know, you just have an outlier and you have a big uh, a big jump in the market. And, you know, it corrects itself the following uh, month or when you get to the next round of data. So I don't know why the markets are going to base everything on this housing data. And, of course, we all know the housing market is very vulnerable to increases in interest rates. So, you know, maybe there's some people trying to buy these new homes quickly before the rates go up. And so once rates go up, the whole housing market rolls over. But a good example of how a number could be good one month and horrible the next is the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index, which also came out yesterday, which nobody talked about. Now, that number, when it came out last month in April, it was a plus 14. And that was the highest it had been, or came kind of like tied one of the highest levels in a while. We had this big spike. In fact, no, it had jumped up in March, and it only surrendered a little bit in April. So it was still very elevated. Well, it was supposed to be another decent month, and instead it crashed uh, to minus one. That was a 15-point drop in one month. It was one of the biggest drops ever. In fact, it may have been the biggest drop ever in one month. And now we're back in negative territory. So whatever that rebound was that everybody was so excited about when we got those positive numbers a couple months ago or last month, that's all gone. We've crashed back down. We're back negative. And no one cares about that negative number. But that negative number, I think, is more telling uh, other than, you know, about the economy than just the number that we got for home sales. But also yesterday, we got this Red Book number, which is year-over-year sales. And very few people seem to talk about this, but I kind of watch it as a trend for retail sales. And last week, it was pretty low. It was 0.5, which was about as low as I've seen it in the last several years, which means that sales this week were 0.5% higher than they were at the same week a year ago. And that doesn't adjust for inflation. That means sales are down because inflation is more than a half of 1%. Last week, it came out as 0.4. That's the lowest it's been in many, many years. In fact, the chart that I'm looking at on the Bloomberg website only goes back to May of 2014, and it's the lowest by far on that site. It seems like we're breaking down. And I think soon that we might start printing negative, negative uh, same-store sales on a uh, year-over-year basis. So that's another weak number that everybody seems to ignore yesterday. So yesterday we got two weak numbers and one strong number, the housing number, and that's the only number that people cared about. But then if you go back to Monday, the market shrugged off the weaker than expected PMI number for May, right? They were looking for the PMI to increase. This is manufacturing. It was at 50.8 in, in March. And the consensus was for a slight improvement to 51. Instead, we dropped again down to 50.5. We're barely above positive. Anything below 50 is contraction, recession. We're at 50.5. We're almost as low as you could be and still be in expansion. And then again, to make it worse, we got the service sector PMI that came out today. Right now, this one was supposed to go up to 53 from the last months of 52.1. Instead, it plunged all the way down to 51.2. 
I mean, so there, the service sector is barely growing. It's growing a little bit more than the manufacturing sector, but it's not growing as fast as it was last quarter. In fact, this service PMI could end up being lower in the second quarter than it was in the first quarter. So where is this second quarter rebound? Because the Fed was supposed to base a rate hike in June on the big rebound in GDP growth in the second quarter. Well, so far, we don't see any evidence that that rebound is actually going to materialize. I mean, sure, we had better than expected uh, new home sales, but so what? We got plenty of other data that was much worse than expected. And how do we know that they're not just going to revise this number down next month? How do we know that this isn't just a fluke and the next month is going to come crashing down? Because, you know, that certainly could happen. So I think that the people who are arguing that the U.S. economy is out of the woods, I think that the data uh, doesn't support that, nor does this data actually support the Fed's rate hike. Of course, the Fed should be raising rates. It should have raised rates a long time ago, and it should raise them a lot more. Not because the economy is strong, but because it's a bubble. And bubbles need to be popped. The sooner, the better. And the sooner we pop this bubble, the sooner we can be begin repairing the damage that was created during the bubble. Instead, the Fed is doing everything it can to nurture this bubble. But unfortunately, it put that small prick in it with that first rate hike, and the air is seeping out no matter what they do. I want to change gears and just talk a little bit about uh, just my personal situation with respect to my father, and most of you know, if you listen to this podcast, that my father, Erwin Schiff, uh, passed away in, in prison back in October of last year. And he had been in prison for better than 10 years. He was serving a 13-year sentence, which he began serving, I think, at 78 or so, 77, 78, for um, you know, various tax charges, which I, I believe he was a political prisoner, and I've got over that before, and I don't need to rehash that again. But you know, if you don't know again about my father's a history. The best thing to do is buy his book, The Federal Mafia, which we have been selling copies at shiftbooks.com. I autograph them, by the way. They're $45 a piece. And that's the book that the U.S. government banned, uh, made it illegal for my father to sell that book, uh, which you know potentially heirs to the, to the value of having one of the only two books in U.S. history ever banned. The other one was banned for sexual reasons. Uh, this one has nothing uh, pornographic in it at all, unless you <laughs> consider exposing government fraud to be pornography. Maybe maybe the government considers that. But anyway, you, sh you should do a little research on my dad if you're not familiar. I put a few of my dad's videos uh, up on my YouTube channel. You can watch some of the, the, the talks that my, my, my father gave. But the reason I wanted to talk about this is just, again, to show you the inefficiency of government, that government can't do anything right. Now, first of all, the reason my father died, and I went over that, is because the government medical treatment was lousy, right? My father got uh, cancer. He got skin cancer, which they probably could have cured had they ever diagnosed it, but they never did. They had my father in custody. He was right there. The hospital was right there, uh, so it would have been easy for them to care for him. But they didn't do anything until it was too late. And then when it was so late, you know, there was no— they couldn't treat it because by the time they had discovered that the cancer had he had cancer, it was all over his lungs. It was in other organs. It was inoperable at that point. So because the government was so inept, uh, my father's 13 uh, year sentence became a death sentence because he was basically killed by incompetent uh, government doctors, which is, you know, another reason that you don't want government providing medical care. But listen to how they handle the prison. So when a prisoner dies in prison, they are so you are supposed to return their personal 
possessions. Not that they have that much stuff when you're in jail, but when you die, your next of kin gets, you know, whatever you had. And they told me that, you know, I was going to be getting, uh, you know, his stuff. And they confirmed my address, you know, when my father died. They said, we're going to mail you his stuff. Well, I just got the package two days ago. It's seven months. He died seven months ago. Now, the box containing my dad's stuff is probably about maybe a foot high by two feet. I mean, it's not like a massive box, right? Because he didn't have that much stuff. Why did it take him seven months? Now, it's not even packed nicely. It's just all thrown into a box. It's not like in any kind of packaging or any kind of order. Just a bunch of stuff thrown into a box. And, of course, they sent me stuff like, you know, half-eaten, you know, boxes of crackers, you know, I mean, stuff that obviously I threw out as soon as I got. They sent me some of his toiletries, like, you know, maybe a, a, a third of a can of shampoo that I would never use, you know, a quarter of a stick of roll-on deodorant. I mean, can't they realize, yeah, I don't need his partially used toiletries or some uh, cheap food that he never had a chance to eat, right? I mean, that you could just throw away. But they, they made sure to put that in the box. But there are a lot of, mostly, it's mostly papers in the box. It was, you know, some of my dad's legal papers, uh, there were a couple of books, uh, my book, How an Economy Grows and Why it, it Crashes. He had one copy of his book, The Biggest Con. He also had a copy of the Tax Troubles Guide to the Constitution. Uh, but, you know, I, I sent him. I know that he had a copy of The Real Crash. He had a copy of Crash Proof. Those weren't there. And there were photographs that I know that we sent him that weren't there. There were some photographs there, but I think a lot of stuff was missing. In addition, the legal papers that we had. I mean, my dad had been in jail for 10 years. He had been filing so much stuff. I'm sure that his collection of legal briefs and papers was actually much bigger than what was in that box. So I have no idea if they even gave me all of my dad's stuff. I just know that what was in that box, but it took him seven months. How does it take you seven months? All of his stuff is in one room, right? My dad has had a little dormish room, like a, you know, a little area. It wasn't, it was a minimum security. So it wasn't bars, but he, he's in this one little room. I mean, how many people, you know, when you move, you have to pack up your entire house, right? Not, you have huge boxes. You have wardrobe boxes. You have furniture. How long does it take to pack up your house and move? A day? Two days? It took the government seven months, seven months to pack up a small box full of stuff. Just throw it in there, seal it, and, and send it UPS. You know, it's interesting. They didn't even use the U.S. Post Office, even though they're a prison. They use they UPS. But seven months? I mean, I wonder how much bureaucratic red tape they had to go through in order to take the stuff from my father's room, put it in a box, and ship it to me. Because that's how the private sector would do it. He would die. The next day, they would ship out his stuff. Instead, they held on to the stuff for seven months before they shipped it out. And I wonder if it was like going all over the place among the prison system before they finally shipped it out. And here's the funniest part of the whole thing. So as I am looking through this box... And there's a lot of letters in there, tons of letters. I'm assuming these are letters that maybe fans of my dad had sent him in prison uh, just as a way to communicate, just to say hi to him and let, him, let them know that they appreciate his sacrifice. And I noticed that there's all these religious stamps. Almost every stamp has got like, you know, the nativity scene on it or Jesus Christ on it. And I'm like, oh, whatever, maybe he has a lot of religious followers. And then I actually look closer at the letters and they were all addressed to a different person, not my dad. There was like over 100 letters addressed to another guy. And all of a sudden it hit me, wait a minute, this is somebody else's stuff. So some other prisoner probably died and his stuff got mixed up with my dad's stuff and they all sent it to me. 
which is, you know, because obviously if they just cleared out my dad's cell or whatever it was and put the stuff in a box, there would be no chance of mixing it up. And this guy, all these letters are addressed to either Springfield, Missouri, or someplace in Illinois. So obviously this other guy spent time in Illinois and he spent time in Missouri. I don't even know if he was ever in Texas. My dad was in Texas. So how does a guy that dies in Texas end up with a bunch of stuff from a guy who was in Chicago, I mean, Illinois or Missouri? How does all that stuff end up in my dad's box? I mean, maybe they had to send everything to some kind of central place and it had to go through various committees and levels of bureaucracy. But meanwhile, they screwed up. They couldn't even fill up my dad's box with my dad's stuff. I got some other guy's stuff in my dad's box, which means how much of my dad's stuff is in somebody else's box? Who knows? But the government can't even do something as simple as pack up the belongings of a prisoner after he dies because it takes them seven months, and after seven months, they didn't even do it right. Now, here is, I guess, the, 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 the worst part of the story. I don't know if this is the worst part of the story or an interesting part of the story. But I decided to look up this guy because I want to try to contact him. I haven't even done this yet. I've been so busy. I, I looked up the guy who all these letters were addressed to. Wanted to see, hey, did he die? Was it my guess? Because, you know, and so I looked him up and I couldn't find an obituary on this guy. But there were a lot of articles about his sentencing. And he was sentenced when he was about, you know, my dad's age. He was in his late 70s. And so based on when he was sentenced, I determined that he would have been 84 now, and so it certainly stands to reason that an 84-year-old guy could have passed away in prison. I mean, my dad was 87, so they're about the same age. So it makes sense that the guy died, and that's why I've got all of his stuff. But I looked him up, and this guy was this huge pedophile. He was a Catholic priest. That's why so many people that supported him, were. that's why all this religious stuff was on the envelopes, because he had a lot of friends who were also religious. He was a Catholic priest, and apparently he had been molesting boys, mostly young boys, teenage boys, for 40 years, 40 years. And he got a 25-year sentence for uh, child abuse or pedophilia or whatever he was doing, whatever the conviction is, sex offender. And the judge threw the book at this guy. I mean, this guy, he gave him more than what the maximum was supposed to be because it was so bad. And apparently the guy didn't have any remorse for what he had done. And, and so so that's, the, that's whose letters I've got. I've got this this convicted sex offender, uh, Catholic priest, molesting young boys. Um, I got, I got his, uh, I got his stuff. Uh, but, uh, and I wonder if the molester's family has got some of my dad's stuff, or maybe my dad's stuff is with who knows who. I mean, they could have sent it anywhere uh, because that's just how incompetent the prison system is, but that's government for you. Government can't do anything. In fact, I put an article on my Facebook page about this high-speed rail system that they're trying to build in in California and this thing has been going on for years and years and years and they've barely laid any track I mean it's and they've already spent hundreds you know tons of money on it and so the article is postulating that even if they can meet their new production schedules they might get to lay this track you know by 2025 or whatever it is and the guy points out that when the railroads were laid in the late 19th century 1880 1890 when we were building out tracks Transcontinental uh, Railroad was being built out with private money, no government money back then. And of course, it was done by hand. We didn't have, they didn't have any machines. They had to lay the tracks by hand and they had to blast through or pick through John Henry style uh, 
tunnels when they got to a mountain. They had to stop and build bridges when they got to a water. I mean, this was this was tough. That what they're building in California is on flat desert land. They don't have to do anything, and they have all the modern equipment. But you know, they laid like a hundred, you know, ten times. I think it was ten times the track that that California is doing in the same amount of time. And when they went all over, I mean, so the point is that even all the modern technology that the state of California has now that didn't exist 200 years ago. All that modern technology isn't enough to overcome the dead weight of bureaucracy. Because even with all the technology, they're less than one-tenth as efficient as people were in the private sector with no technology, hammers and nails, right? Doing it all by hand, right? They, they were more, so imagine, imagine how efficient they could have built those railroads if they had today's technology with yesterday's government. Or imagine how much more efficient the private sector would be today if we didn't have all the rules, regulations, and taxes that we're dealing with. Because I'm sure if we had the same type of government back when we built the transcontinental railroads, if they were regulating and taxing them, they probably never would have built those railroads. In fact, I've joked if, you know, the settlers, picture the, uh, the American settlers who settled the West, right? They went out West, you know, go West young man. And they went in covered wagons and they went by horseback and they just went out there. Right. Well, can you imagine if all these covered wagons had to meet with some kind of government safety standards, if there was some kind of inspection? And what if all these people moving west had to pay income taxes, you know, had to keep records and had to file taxes and had Social Security? Imagine if they had to go through with all the rules and regulations that exist today. If all these settlers on these wagon trains, if they all had to do all that, you think they ever would have made it? you know, past the Mississippi, they, they never would have left. They would have, they, we, we would have stayed on the East Coast. The entire country would still be the East Coast and the rest of it would still be Indians. I mean, Native Americans. There's so much factually incorrect information and underreporting by legacy media today. Shouldn't there be truth in media? Well, there is. Truth in Media. Recently, a novel thought is now a reality with TruthinMedia.com. Led by award-winning journalist Ben Swan, TruthinMedia.com is the source for uninfluenced, reliable, fearless news where journalists pursue real questions, not conspiracies. Make TruthinMedia.com your default browser's homepage today and get breaking news and commentary that speaks the truth to power. It's also where you can tune into The Peter Schiff Show every week. Visit TruthinMedia.com today. That's truthinmedia.com. Access the Truth in Media RS feed by visiting truthinmedia.com forward slash feed. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They're all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. 
Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold videocast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com.